Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Saturday Morning D&D Show. My name is Jordan with a silent PH in the middle, and I'm joined today by our good friend Lex from uh, Dank Dungeons and various, the, the Internet's Lex, as I like to call him. Because he's just all over the internet. Uh, and he's going to be my special guest host today because Lucian uh, bailed on me last minute. So Lex is Oof. awesome for being here. Uh, also last minute. So uh, welcome. Thank you. Hey, no, thanks for having me. It's great yeah. to be here. I'm excited to be on an episode that isn't accidentally yes. deleted. <laughs> really good. My I second, believe that was way... time on the show. We're on episode 129. And uh, I think... That was episode like five or six that I'm like, Lex, be on the show with me. And then I didn't record it and we only streamed it. But that was before I understood Twitch and you have to activate something to have it archive mm -hmm. even for like a week. So yeah, it like, do doesn't yeah. automatically do that. Yep. So the video uh, was just gone. So uh, yeah, but we, we talked about a lot of good stuff that episode, I'm sure, because we're very interesting people. And, it was and, great. Yeah, it was, a, was it was an amazing episode. So lost good. to the sands. <laughs> uh, but I yeah, I didn't realize you were this far in, even though I was looking at the show notes, which indicated the episode number. Uh -huh. It still really hit me when you said it just now. I'm like, wow, you've been doing such a great job with this oh, show. Well, so consistent. Uh, fairly consistent. Um, my dog's barking for some reason. We uh, I mean, there's certain weeks that we don't don't do a show for whatever reason. Um, but lately we've been trying to get guest hosts. So when only, when only Jordan can't make it, Lucian will find somebody else to be on the show and stuff and, and vice versa. Um, but no, it's been fun. And it's like a, I don't know. I have so many things going on with YouTube and Rod of seven parts and, uh, my, just my personal life and stuff. But this has been a nice, like end of the week capstone, I guess. Like I finish Friday and I, we do the show and it just gets me amped up to work on stuff over the weekend. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, nice. Lex, who are you for people who don't know? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I'm the Internet's Lex Mandrake. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, you can find me on the Internet, on Twitter, at Dank Dungeons. And I do all sorts of different stuff. I uh, write stuff. Sometimes I make music. Uh, I have an actual play fantasy comedy series on YouTube. And gosh, what else do I do? I don't know. Those are the main things. Yeah. <laughs> No, um, and you've you've written uh, you've collaborated with uh, a, a mutual friend of our. Well, you introduced me to our mutual friend, but um, and you did the joy of monster cooking and some various mm -hmm. other things on the DMs Guild, uh, yep, which uh, are very funny. Of uh, mm -hmm. uh, I believe Web DM talked about it randomly one day, and so I was yeah like... they they did well they did a video <laughs> on uh, like eating monsters and stuff and the and the idea of like harvesting stuff from monsters and using uh -huh. their parts. Um, hey, LB is in chat. Very yeah. cool. Uh, and uh, and in that video, they were talking about like, oh, if you need uh, a book on cooking monsters, just pick up the Joy of Monster Cooking. Uh, and we were, and then we got a lot of sales. Yeah, <laughs> that's that fun. So that was cool. But we're we're really happy with how that book came out. At this point, it was like, gosh, two years ago. It was a while yeah. ago we wrote it. Um, uh, but the things that still stick out to me is that every once in a while we will still get notes from people being like, oh, I like printed out like a physical copy of this so that when my players are in the game world and they find the book in the game world, I can give it to them and then they can like choose to try and use it to make recipes that I always get a kick out of that. No, that's really fun uh, with I love props, I guess I should say that. Um, and so. One of my favorite setting things, and I think you probably enjoy or know about it and enjoy it, is Hot Springs Island. 
Um, mm-hmm. And with Hot Springs Island, there is uh, another supplement book called A Field Guide to Hot Springs Island. And when they find the field guide in the game, you physically hand them that book. And you're like, oh, here nice. you go. And it's got uh, it's got notes in it from previous explorers. And so my players, when they finally got the book, they were like, what the heck? Because there were hexes that were like mapped out that they hadn't been to yet. And so it was this really cool. Oh, did you guys know there's like a dragon statue over here? And like, it was really fun. Um, but even like going to a, a, a pub or a, a, a tavern and having physical menus to hand them. Like, I always think that's a lot of fun. Uh, 100%. And- yeah. Uh, one of my so yeah. favorite games is, or one of my games that I haven't played yet is Invisible Sun that I really love. And they have uh, a mechanic where it rains keys, like physical keys in the world. And every once in a while, you'll find a magical one called a wicked key that can unlock certain things. And uh, it's it's taken a lot of uh, willpower to not purchase these physical metal keys that Monty Cook Games is producing and, and putting on their website for a game that I'm not even actively playing to then have props that I will probably never use in the game. But like, yeah, it's kind of fun. I like the idea of being like, oh, it's raining keys now. And you just take a box out from under the table and start throwing <laughs> keys at people, at your players. Yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. It's, it's amazing like that. Find shelter. Metal is falling on your <laughs> metal, head. It's awful. It's It's crazy. That's a... You, you. I think you would like Invisible Sun if you've ever checked it out. The world is is very odd, uh, and I like. Yeah, I've I've looked at like a little bit of stuff. It's so it's so out there that it's really difficult for me to like try and get into it. Like, like I'm sure that I would love to play in a game of it if someone was like, "Oh, play in this one shot," because then someone would be able to introduce me to it and like ease me into it. Mm -hmm. But whenever I've tried to read stuff about it, I'm like too overwhelmed, too much weirdness. One time, yeah. I, I got overwhelmed with it as well, but then, I don't know, I just went headfirst into it. And there was like, I think there was like a month and a half, maybe like five weeks where I was just actively reading all of the Invisible Sun books that I bought and PDFs and things. And of course, the more you read, the more things connect together and you kind of realize like, oh, there's like a overarching design that uh, Monty Cook did while when he was building this world. It's... But that's the joy of playing in it is that you as the player start to unravel all and you're like, oh, it, it is all connected. It's kind of cool. Um, and anyway, but I, a game that I have not been able to play. Uh, people from the show uh, might remember, Lex, you are on uh, Rod of Seven Parts with us. That's true. I, yeah. I play and you, you play Shifter. The Illusionist Wizard. Who's <laughs> a huge jerk. Shifter yeah. is such a jerk. Just so mean to everyone. <laughs> He's very um, in control, I think, is a good word to say. And uh, yes, because I, well, of I'm that, it's like, it. no, you do this for me. Like, or no, we do this. Like, this is the most logical decision to mm-hmm. maintain order and control and, and what have you. Uh, I know you're you're on the uh, the spot here, but I, I mean, I assume you're having fun with it. Is it? Is it uh, oh, no, the game's terrible. <laughs> I don't know who runs it, but they do an awful job. It's, They're it's really the bad. Worst. Uh, no, it's it's a cool game. It's a really great conversion from second edition. I think you've done a good job with it. And I appreciate it because there are a lot of things that come up, especially when we roll on tables and stuff, mm-hmm. where I'm like, ooh, this feels like second edition. Yeah. In in a good way, because we're not like calculating Thacko. Like that would be second edition in a bad way. Yeah, right? yeah. No, and, but, uh, and I guess yeah. that's the point. Is I love a lot of these older adventures, and I read a lot of them for the lore aspect and it's so easy to like just 
I, I was going to say upgrade, but not a lot of people would think that it's an upgrade from second edition, but, uh, but that story's still good and you can take it and just mm-hmm. kind of plot it and be like, let's, yeah, let's a... run it. And rod of seven parts is unique because it says in the beginning of the book, like the rods just exist in the world, these fragments, um, or in the universe and, uh, wherever they land, that's when the story starts happening. So you could just be like, I'm going to put it in Eberron or I'm going to put it here. And it's kind of like, you could put it wherever you want. And I chose, uh, Faerun because of the channel and stuff. And yeah. I like the Forgotten Realms and, and you like the realms because you knew quite a bit going in, you created your character from, um, uh, yeah, no, I think there's all sorts of parts of the realms that I look into on a regular basis just because I think they're interesting. A lot of people find the realms to be very generic fantasy, but I typically discover that when I drill down into like asking those people what they think is so generic about it, they just cite examples from the Sword Coast. And I'm just like, well, you're right. The Sword Coast is really generic fantasy or high fantasy, I should say. But like there's a lot more to the continent <laughs> than yeah. that. And there's a lot of really varied stories you can tell because there are very varied locations. Uh, there's like a great Egypt analog, analog a great Persia analog. There's um, a great Turkey analog. There's uh, a play. I, I Later in the show, I wanted to talk about Narfel a little bit, but I've been reading about that and kind of realizing that that makes a really good Russia analog. Mm. Um and yeah, there's just tons of stuff you can do with it if you want. The Sea of Fallen Stars is like a Mediterranean ocean analog. So there's, yeah, there's so much stuff you can do. It's great. So yeah. many different stories that you can tell if you just go outside the the area that tends to get focused on. So I, uh, I, I've been having a couple people. I, I made a video recently that was, uh, here's eight plot hooks that you can just use in, in the Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. Um and that video came about from you guys exploring various sections of, of just the Sword Coast. And, and then it was like, oh, you want to go to Candlekeep? I, like, read a bunch about Candlekeep, and I'm like, we could do this and this. And then, oh, you're going to go to Dragonspear Castle. Oh, there's, like, uh, Rakshasa that runs a vampire group there. Like, it, it, all of that stuff was just there. And I'm like, this is kind of fun to take, and I can do whatever I want with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was what really inspired that video is like, there's lots of little weird things throughout the realms that you could be like, no, if they wind up here, here's like an obvious problem that your players could fix. That's going to take like three or four sessions. And then they could move on to the next place. If they're in like a travel montage. Uh, I totally forgot my question, but I think it was something to do with, um, do, do you find that in like Narfel when you're reading and things is like, like you said, it's a good analogy for this, but actually now, well, I'll let you answer that, and then I remembered my question. But go ahead. <laughs> uh, I think some places are more clearly a real-world cultural analogs than others. Uh, some of them just seem like straight out of you know, uh, your boy Ed's imagination, or I should say, I'm sorry, they're real. Elminster told mm-hmm. Ed Greenwood yeah. about. He them. came yes. to he came to uh, Earth, and they had a conversation. Tea. tea yeah. Served. Yeah, yeah. It's. Nothing weird about that. So, uh, and yeah, some of them just seem more like uh, straight up, just interesting ideas. Like uh, one of the reasons I think Thay has been so uh, endured so much is because it's this idea that's like, it really is a really cool, pretty original idea. You take this, uh, this idea of like, hey, Mulholland? I can never pronounce it right. I say but Mulholland, the Egypt analog. But yeah. 
yeah 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 the egypt analog that's farther south you're like back in the day they conquered a bunch of stuff because they were they're like an ancient civilization right they conquer a bunch of stuff and they have a society that's like oh priests are the most important arcane spellcasters are not important they're no good and then one of the sections of their empire is primarily lived in by arcane spellcasters and those guys are like oh you're repressing us by not letting us practice magic we want to do crazy stuff and the Mulharandi priests are just like, you're going to summon demons or something. We can't let you. But the empire is in decline. So the what becomes they breaks off from it. So you mm -hmm. have these people who are ethnically basically Egyptian um, and like the subjugated peoples who lived in that area prior. And they just make a whole different kind of society uh a godless like, society in a way yeah like the a, gods a totally still exist god, yeah. in forgotten realms but they are like well the gods are oppressive because the priests were oppressive so mm -hmm. now we have the power and the tools to do it and so yeah taking taking your your government taking a lot of that into your own hands and yeah yeah it's it's a really uh it's a really cool sort of take on that and you can understand it from the different perspectives although the fans bad guys portrayed yeah, as bad they guys are. they do lots of really bad stuff like <laughs> they probably shouldn't have been allowed to break off into their own nation and just do whatever they wanted with arcane magic because they bad but it's their story is a little more multifaceted and gives you some interesting narrative mm -hmm. uh, and perspective stuff that you can do with it so so that's really cool and pretty original uh but yeah the um like i talk about column a lot that's basically an analog for Turkey. I think originally it was supposed to be an analog just generally for the Middle East. Yeah. But then when they made Zakara, mm -hmm. uh, the Al-Qadim uh, area, they introduced that as a supplemental setting. They were just like, oh, well, now Kalimshan, it doesn't have to just be an, uh, an amalgam of the Middle East so we can be more specific with it. And people were like, oh, so it should be like the old Ottoman Empire, mm -hmm. basically just be Turkey. And that's really cool because, you you know, when stuff is based off of a real uh, historical or not based off, but inspired by a real historical thing, it's much easier to write stuff in it, campaign stuff in it, because you can look at stuff that happened in real history for like your political intrigue or yeah. inspirations for your NPCs. You just get to mix magic and mythology into it more, yeah. which makes it more fun. 100%. And uh, that reminds me of when you ran a... Uh, first edition game for us, basic D and D, or yeah, yes. D and D basic. Or for, I say for us, for me and and uh, uh, McBoots forty two um, and a couple of other friends. And one of my favorite things was you would get so excited. You're like, okay, you guys go here. I, I researched actual foods from this area, and then you guys can have all of these interesting like camel meat things. And it was fun. Like, and that's the kind of research that you can do when it is inspired from a uh, a real life source. You know, mm -hmm. totally. Yeah. No, that was my Brightlands campaign for the Greyhawk yeah. channel. That's right. Yeah, uh, and... it was Greyhawk. Yeah. Yep. So and what do I you was... go ahead? Oh, I was just going to say I was researching Brightlands and I was like, oh, I could throw some Moroccan influence in here. So I researched mm -hmm. Moroccan street food for it. And I made a lot of it uh, an, uh, an, uh, a reference to like ancient Sumerian stuff. So a lot of the ruins in the desert were like based off of Sumerian and Babylonian stuff. Mm. 
Now, uh, a, a comment I'm getting a lot lately with, with Forgotten Realms YouTube is, um, what do you do when your players know more about the Forgotten Realms than you do as the DM? And I've never encountered this, I guess, because a lot of times I'll preface it saying, well, this is my game and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. But like, for example, uh, Rod of Seven Parts is supposed to be, you know, current realms or whatever. And you guys went and found that Rakshasa in Dragonspear Castle. Uh, that's a whole adventure from like, you know, 1420. And that Rakshasa has been gone for like 70 years. But I decided to use it because I thought it was cool. But I don't know. I, I haven't had people pop up and be like, um, actually, he was missing from this and this and this. Uh, and I don't know. Like, have you experienced that knowing like a lot about the realms or have you ran a lot of games in the realms or even your Greyhawk experience, I guess? Um, I mean, the Greyhawk thing I didn't have to worry about because much fewer people seem to know about the Greyhawk history. I think some of the audience of the show was just like, oh, you should like reference this or this. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know that because I just researched this specific part of Greyhawk for this right. campaign. But because uh, I know less about Greyhawk in general than I do about the realms. But I have not run into a situation where I have a player who knows more about the realms than I do because I am a huge nerd about it. I mean, one of my first D&D books that I ever bought uh, after the third edition player's handbook was the third edition forgotten realms guide so like that book is falling apart mm -hmm. i've read the heck out of that uh, <laughs> and the yeah so i haven't run into that but i would say if you do run into it your solution very good in my mind which is that yeah like it's it's your version of the realms yeah uh but i think it's kind of just like oh well if this person has something that they're really interested in in the realms uh, i would go to them as a dm and be like so you uh, know a lot about the realms. What are some of like the highlights of the realms to you? And then you as the DM can try to like work some of that stuff into the game or research it yourself. Like I was playing in a second edition uh, game and just frustrated by Thacko the whole time. But I was playing <laughs> in that uh, a couple of years ago with a bunch of Gen Xers and their whole thing was like, they played second edition growing up and then they wanted to get back into the game now that yeah. like their family lives were slowing down and they invited me to play in it. And the, I knew a lot more about the realms than the DM did, but he would be like, oh, we, we have downtime in the game. What do you want your character to do? And I'm like, oh, I want to go, because I think I had um, a flying carpet that I had found in a dragon horde at some point. Awesome. So I said like, oh, I want to go and like look for stuff. I want, or like go on, go and journey in different parts of the realms. And he's like, oh, what parts of the realms? And I was like, oh, well, I like Kalamshan. I like uh, the Anorak Desert uh and some other different places and i told that and then when we came back from break he was like okay while you were traveling in that desert you found this treasure map so he had looked up an adventure that had been set there that had to deal with the treasure map and gave me the treasure map so he's like yeah so if you can convince the party we can basically go and i can run this adventure for you that's cool. um, in that location and i thought that was really really cool because it was a great way for the dm to be like I don't necessarily know everything about this part of the realms, but if you point me in a direction, I will go and research it and then present you with something that is to your taste uh, in this lore area. Right? Yeah. And I think that that also just comes back full circle to a, a, a session zero 
where you say straight up, like, we're going to run a game here. What do you guys want to get out of this game? It's like, oh, I really want to go to Kalamshan. I really want to do this. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then you can kind of, I mean, if it is just a more open thing, you can run around and, and do that. And I love that idea. And I, I think that's another really cool thing about the realms is that you could be like, okay, I want to run something in the Honorok Desert. And then you, you know, start searching through older material and you find this uh, module 7B that was actually built for the Honorok Desert. And you can kind of just upscale that and run it. So that's really cool. I yeah. like it. Uh, you are working on, you're writing. Uh, we've been talking about it on Rata 7 Parts. You're working on a zine. What's what's going on there? I'd like to hear more about this zine that I'm excited for. Uh, yeah, I'm making the zine. Um, I guess, like, if there are future issues, then I guess the title of the zine becomes Dank Dungeons Presents, and then whatever the subtitle is, is that issue, mm -hmm. I guess. But I don't know if there's going to be future issues. So, <laughs> the one I'm working on right now is called The Shifting City. And it is uh, a system agnostic RPG setting guide slash uh, dungeon synth album. Rock yeah, <laughs> uh, it's um, and it's basically about this um, the thing that I came up with myself, but I'm sure it's a derivative of something that I just don't know about. Um, the idea that there's this city that is magically enchanted that shifts between planes of existence um, every week or so, and the idea is that it's populated by merchants because it'll like shift to a different plane of existence and then people will wander into it and buy and sell stuff and then the city will shift again but the wares that have been bought uh, and sold from that dimension are still there so then when they go to a new dimension they're like hey do you want to buy like a magical sword from another dimension this is the only place you can buy it because this city's been there so uh yeah primarily populated by merchants and then the two big power uh structures in the city are aristocrats who i named the panjandrum which is like a funny term that I, I, I basically had a thesaurus open and I was okay. looking at um, You're throwing other, darts at it or <laughs> yeah, I was like other terms for aristocrat or oligarch. And I found that and I was like, that sounds obscure and fun. So I'm yeah, it is fun. It. Yeah. And, uh, and they're the, they're these rulers that are like merchants who have cornered a certain market and because they have cornered that market and have enough wealth and prestige, they become uh, the people who govern the city right. and there's just you know like a couple dozen of them at any given time and then whenever one of them falls out of grace in their market because like i don't know people just become uninterested in that product they lose enough money and then they lose that social station and whoever has more money moves up and becomes a new pinjandrum uh, and then the other power structure are thieves guilds because you know it's a big city trade yeah. is a focus so thieves guilds and uh, there's like the book says, oh, there's like hundreds of them at any given time because they're always forming uh, big or small, so it's... backstabbing each other, <laughs> yeah, falling apart like... and then reforming. Yeah. You're just like, do you want to do you want to start a thieves guild? Yeah. Yeah. Just the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get some more people out or something. And then like a week later, they've got hundreds of followers and then it all falls yeah. apart because they don't have a structure for their thieves guild mm -hmm. or something. That's fun. It's exactly that. Yes. Uh, so. The one of the things I the book kind of is and I try not to be too heavy handed with it or preachy, but I, there's a lot there's a lot of satire in it, which is just like, hey, did you know capitalism is bad? Oh. It produces <laughs> it produces bad people. There's lots of everyone who rules the city is a product of how bad capitalism can be. Um, but uh, it's mostly I wanted to do the OSR thing and have random tables for stuff. 
So for Thieves Guilds, it's like, oh, there's hundreds at any given time. Instead of giving you a list of Thieves Guilds, here are several pages of random roll tables to generate your own Thieves Guilds. And there's all sorts of crazy stuff you can make. Like you can make a Thieves Guild that are a bunch of like buskers uh, who are like ghosts (laughs) and have this crazy hideout that's like, full of uh like uh that's like a weird uh some sort of aquarium that has all sorts of weird underwater life in it and they would have like a crazy name like the the 13 ne'er-do-wells or something mm-hmm. and there's yeah there's just all these charts that allow you to randomly generate pretty much the whole thing or i mean as i write in the text you can just choose the ones you want that's mm-hmm. also fine but uh so the same idea for the panjandrum there's a bunch of charts for generating them and the kind of market that they have control over and what their entourage is like so their entourage can be like uh cephalopod diviners so just like (laughs) octopus people who can foretell the future are, are like the people that hang out with them uh oh yeah it's mentioned in chat i came across this as well really funny the other use of panjandrum is a weird super weapon that was designed for World War II. It looks really silly. It's like a big <laughs> wheel. Uh, it's like okay. the other use of that word. And it's a great pandandrum. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. A rocker propelled yeah, yeah, yeah. explosive laden cart designed mm-hmm. by the British military. That's really funny and cool. It's really silly. It was one of the things where I found that word as a as a synonym for uh, oligarch. And I put it in the book, and then I later found out it was that. And I'm like, I don't know. I think this makes this word better. Now I oh, want to use 100%. it more because, oh yeah, gosh, how silly look at that this is. Art. It's it's so silly. History's looking. failed military weapons. Okay, I'm putting this in chat. Uh, no, I'm not because so, I copied the wrong thing. But I will put it in chat. Just you, you wait. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's there's those generated in the book. There's short pieces of fiction in the book because I just like doing that. Uh, the idea that you can read like a page that's like a little short story, like a little vignette, and it's just set in the setting. So you have an idea of what the setting's like just from that instead of me like explaining what it's the setting is like, you know. And there's random generators for magic items, uh, rumors in the city, so different adventure hooks. Uh, also creating your own Thieves Guild hideout or Panjandrum Villa so that adventurers can adventure through those locations. And finally, there's a little adventure at the end where I just generated a Thieves Guild, a Panjandrum, and a Panjandrum Villa. And then I made a heist adventure that's set in that location. That's fun. Um, yeah, it's cool. The, the only reason why it's not out yet, because I was going to put it out a couple weeks ago, is just because I'm still waiting on some dungeon art for the map for the adventure. But as awesome. soon as that yeah. gets to me, uh, that book is basically done. So in the next couple weeks, I'm hoping. Where oh, are you releasing and then it? There's the, uh, I'm releasing it on Bandcamp because okay. it is partially an album too. It has this whole synthwave album. You can actually check it out right now. Most of the tracks are up if you want to listen to what the album sounds like. And if you're familiar with Dungeon Synth, that's what it's like. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, um, instrumental. Give me the uh, the link and I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast and various other things that sub- uh, so that people watching this later can check it out. Um, yeah. But... Uh, Man, that's really cool. That's really awesome. I am also, well, half working on a uh, campaign setting because I I think that's the natural dungeon master thing to do at some point is you're just like, and, and we we especially like the OSR. 
And I want, mm-hmm. I like, and after playing Hot Springs Island, I love the idea of a system neutral campaign setting. And that I could be like, I want to play this with 5th edition D&D, but you know what? I could play this with Dungeon Crawl Classics and it could be a very different game just because the mechanics are different and, and roll tables and stuff. And I also, what I love about uh, your Shifting Sands world is that because of the roll tables, which is just a fun OSR thing that I love, uh, the shifting city could leave. And when it comes back, you re-roll and you're like, oh yeah, those people that were in power, totally gone. Now it's like, it's all about, you know, Big Al and he runs everything and da da da. And yeah, like Thieves Guilds change because you can just roll it and be like, yeah, there you go. So really The market fun. is completely different now. After those three other plane hops they did, no yeah. one cares about like fire nectar anymore now it's all about <laughs> this weird exotic fish that everyone needs to get their hands on too funny um so i i knew i wanted to talk about dcc because we both love dcc sure. um they're doing a uh the bride of cyclops con i think it's mm-hmm. what it's called um and there it's an online thing we t- i talked about it before but uh dutch recall classics goodman games hosted a um cyclops con which was their online uh just an online convention that they were, I think they were testing the waters to make sure they could make DCC days online as opposed to in mm-hmm. uh, whatever. But you ended up running a, a fun game for that, uh, that we co-wrote, which was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, uh, we co-wrote games for both of their uh, virtual conventions so far. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I forgot about the other one. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one was per- uh, Purple Peril of the Purple Planet. Mm-hmm. Uh that was um, kind of a campaign setting for Digital Call Classics, uh, but it's you know this this terrible purple planet, and and you wanted you liked it, and so we we ran something there that we wrote, and that was fun. And then the other one was uh, uh, Umerica, which mm-hmm. is the post-apocalyptic uh, America setting. Like I don't know for yeah. Digital Call Classics, that's really fun. Yeah, the, so it was the the purple planet one with sand sailors of the purple planet, which was just people going across a desolate wasteland trying to find their way to a portal that can send them back to the worlds that they're from and escape the terrible alien world of the purple planet which is it's very like a like um like a john carter of mars kind Mm -hmm. of setting except a little more brutal and the umerica thing was welcome to dinotastic park which is just a jurassic park reference the whole thing was jurassic park (laughs) but it's so much Um, fun Oh, it was a ton of fun. It was really great to run. And it's funny because we for that one, uh, we had Celeste Conowich playing in mm-hmm. it. And the whole time she was just like, I'm working on a Jurassic Park referencing thing right now. And I can't oh. say anything about it. And which that is just out came now. out like yeah, last yeah. week, which is what, Dino World or yeah, something? Dino which World. is an Eberron setting uh, Jurassic Park reference D&D adventure you can find on DMs Guild. So uh, that was super cool. I haven't read it yet. Maybe she stole out all of my ideas from the Oh, probably. Shop, yeah. You, I mean, there's some royalty checks you should be getting in the mail soon. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, but those virtual cons are amazing. And yeah. They're really, really fun. Uh, and the stuff I've been running uh, and that Jordan has been helping me write has been up on um, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classic, Goodman Games, uh, mm-hmm. Twitch channel and broadcast during the virtual cons. But the way the virtual cons work is like, phenomenal and one of those things that like other companies specifically wizards of the coast need to take note of yeah uh the way it works is there's a there's a website for um events uh i think it's just called tabletop.events i could be wrong Mm -hmm. but the the way it works 
in non-pandemic times is an event is posted and you buy your tickets through the site and you can sign up for events that are happening uh, at the event through the site. But the way Goodman Games has used it for virtual cons is you sign up for the virtual con through the site. You can also host virtual games and you can um, sign up for the different games that people are hosting. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's a fee for enter- for signing up for the con, which is usually like five bucks yeah. or something. And then to play in a game, it ranges from uh, free, which I think is if a random person is running one, right? Uh, or like four bucks to like eight bucks. So basically nothing. It's very yeah. little. Kind money. of like Gen Con does that where... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they I think Gen Con wants all the tables to be free for people to just mm-hmm. come and play cuz you already bought a ticket to Gen Con but yeah. you have to have a little bit of money behind a ticket in order for people to show up to their game and mm-hmm. and things like that you know so it's like no I I did spend $4 on this I want to go play the game and I feel like Goodman Games is is using that model because uh you could do free uh and I think the Wizards of the Coast did a bunch of like free games but the Adventure League DMs wouldn't show up and like other things weren't happening. And so a lot of games oh, no. weren't happening. And uh, yeah. And so I, 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 I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. So yeah, you, you buy a ticket for like two bucks or something and then I'm in Lex's game and that's exciting. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's really, yeah, it's set up really well. Everything seems to work pretty well. Like the last mm-hmm. two uh, cons I was in, gosh, two or three games each con like premium events that goodman games dms were hosting Mm -hmm. and it was great because it would be like brendan lasalle who writes a bunch of adventures for them and like made the x crawl setting that Mm -hmm. they have was like running x crawl games and i could just sign up and be in them and i'm like cool i get to play in an x crawl game written by the dude who wrote x crawl that's awesome (laughs) uh and yeah lots of fun the only problems that we ran into was just like some zoom technical glitch things which considering like goodman games are very new to to technology it seems like uh, I totally understand yeah. that they might have some issues and other players just because it's like random people who have bought tickets are playing and then we have to make sure like their tech setup is okay. Yeah. Like, so do you have a microphone that works? Oh, you didn't test your microphone. Okay. Yeah, and like, yeah. is your internet fast enough for this? Oh, it's not because someone's upstairs is watching Netflix and you have very limited bandwidth and yeah. So, oh, so here's a, a thing from chat that reminded me because I haven't actually looked into it. The D&D celebration thing. I know yeah. there's a bunch of panels right because i've read about a bunch of those and people who are going to be on them and i'm interested to watch them but are there virtual games that you can join i believe so yeah and i think it's uh i think they learned from their last time doing this that they're gonna have um all the money is going to charity from what i understand so even the five dollar ticket sale and things like that Mm -hmm. but that gets you into the con and lets and i think that five dollars allows you to register for a certain amount of games is really what it is because I don't have to buy that ticket to watch D and D's stream of all their panels. Um, so I think that's what the ticket does, but uh, mm-hmm. I should, I should know this because we're a Saturday morning D and D talk show, but uh, I don't. So we'll I'll have yeah, more, we were... more information next week. How about that? Yeah, We were <laughs> talking about like new news and I was just like, I don't think anything's happened. There was the D and D celebration thing. And I just totally <laughs> forgot yeah. that that was happening. Well, it's, and so uh, PAX is, going to do a, a two-week-long thing, I think. Uh, or maybe it's 10 days. Uh, but 
but basically PAX Online, because everyone's doing online cons now, PAX Online and the D&D Celebration are happening or closing on the same weekend. So like PAX is 10 days and then D&D Celebration is like the last three days. And I wonder if they're doing something together, if there's going to be a lot of Tasha announcement or if just like new announcements because... Uh, specifically Zendikar and things like that. They did a bunch of Magic the Gathering announcements and they're going to have that Forgotten Realms Magic the Gathering setting, which is interesting to me. I'm not a Magic the Gathering, like, super guy, so I'm, and I don't know. So, uh, But I thought that was kind of funny that they're like, no, we're going to do, like, I don't know, you can play Guinevar and, and Drist and you have cards that play these plane walkers or something. Uh, but that announcement for Q3 of 2021 made me think that we're going to get an announcement of, by the way, we're getting a Zendikar book for 5th edition D&D because Zendikar is really popular. And mm. uh, why, if you're going to cross promote, why not have something that gets the D&D people into magic and the magic people back into D&D so that they can become friends at the game store and hang out and it's going to be good. Yeah, I we were having the, this discussion with Ted after Rod of Seven Parts uh, this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, also, hey, after our Rod of Seven Parts games, we have some spicy, hot <laughs> discussions about the industry. I <laughs> want to record them and put them on the on the Patreon, but I don't think I want that at the same thing because we have we have very strong opinions about things. <laughs> we, we have very strong opinions, and we're not always nice about stuff. <laughs> um, but, but they're uh, fun. But yeah. Yeah, no, I, we, we have fun. We have fun. So we have fun. the, well, what, well we ta- we're talking about this and I was making the point of like, hey, I understand that they want to cross promote their stuff, but like, I don't know what sales were like for Ravnica or Theros, mm-hmm. but I assume judging by like how much I hear about them in use, specifically Ravnica, that sales were okay, but significantly less than most other D&D products, right? So I don't like I don't understand why they keep doing crossovers with magic sets because I don't like it seems like a less lucrative thing to do. And you had brought up that you had some friends who when Ravnica came out, they were like Magic the Gathering players mm-hmm. and had been, they had come to you and said, oh, there's a Magic the Gathering D&D thing. We want you to run that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had been like, no, I don't know anything about Ravnica, so I'm not going to. And I don't. And, that, and that's what it was. Like, they were, they really wanted to play D&D, but they wanted to play in Ravnica. And I'm sure that uh, had I the time, I, co- I probably could have talked to them and convinced them to play in a non-Ravnica game. But I was like, I don't have time for another game at this point. I was running like three or four uh, a week. And th- that was just a lot uh, back in the day. Uh, pre-baby days. Now I'm I'm good with my two games, and that's all I'm getting in. But uh, they they yeah they wanted to play in a Ravnica game so bad because they knew all of the lore, and so then I was trying to convince them like you should just buy that book and run a Ravnica game, like buy the player's handbook and buy Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, and that's all you really need. You're probably mm. sold. Like oh yeah, uh, and he was like, well I don't I don't know, and I'm like I think D and D is a lot simpler than Ra- than Magic the Gathering rules, but I could be wrong. <laughs> like <laughs> you can do this. I mean, it's definitely simpler simpler than Magic the Gathering rules like prior to, what, 2008? Because <laughs> yeah. they did do like a, a rule overhaul at one point and removed like a lot of the stuff with the stack and mm. spell burn and things, uh, which is too bad because, or not spell burn, mana burn, 
um, which is too bad because Mana Burn was cool. But the, yeah, the, it, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to hate on Ravnica in any way when I say that I don't think it sold well. Like, I think that might be the best written 5e book that, that, that has been produced. Like, it's I good. love that book. Yeah. Uh, and I really want to use it more, but I feel like I don't see it a lot in use. And I don't know if it successfully is bringing in people from Magic the Gathering. Right. Um, and so that's why I'm always like confused when they're like, we're doing another Magic the Gathering crossover book. And I'm like, guys, how is this like, why this, how is this working for you? Yeah. Uh, we have a note in chat that it's more cost effective to make Magic the Gathering crossover books because they already own a bunch of art that they can slap in the book, don't need to commission new art. Yeah. Which and the true. art is always fantastic too. It's so, so good. <laughs> these books come out and you're like, wow. Like, I mean, Theros had. Like they had all the the Nyx gods and stuff uh, mm-hmm. from the the Dream World, and you're like, this looks awesome. And most uh, most nine times out of ten, I feel like people pick up uh, RPG stuff because the art resonates with them for a little bit. And we talked about the alternate Theros cover, it just is so cool. Uh, the shiny foil one with like the Hydra attacking oh, and yeah. stuff, and you're just yeah, like, this yeah. looks amazing. Uh, and you're right. Like it, it when it's in house like that, they're like, we own the property, we own all the art, we mm-hmm. we literally just have to hire like two or three writers who are probably big into Magic the Gathering lore anyway, and they could like write a quick book and then throw some art on there and we go. So, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I know that you would save a lot of money on art because I know how much it costs to commission art. Since yeah. I sometimes publish things that have commissioned art for them, uh, and it definitely can be quite a bit of money, but it's still there's a lot of other like layout and writing costs are probably more than your costs of art with really? a, with the okay. book at least of that size anyway mm-hmm. like if it's a short document it might be art that's more but th- yeah so i assume that like uh, they're definitely saving money but are they saving that much money mm-hmm. uh and yeah it's um i don't know what did uh ted was also saying something about how what he would like to see is uh, wizards do more like licensed properties because it would be like more guaranteed like sales. Right. Yeah. Uh, but instead all of these different licensed properties are doing D and D stuff, but they're just doing it on their own. Uh, like they're trying to make their uh, own system uh, like game of Thrones. Like, okay, we have well, game of Thrones that, but... and we don't, we don't do game of Thrones in D and D five E instead yeah. we're going to like create our own game of Thrones RPG system. And it's like, it would you would sell so much more if it was just a this is how you can use the system that is popular and you are familiar with uh with a game of thrones like setting over it or something uh, a yeah. bad example because everyone hates game of thrones after the season finale but <laughs> i mean it, or the yes, series it is bad now <laughs> <laughs> but uh the witcher is like that too yeah. uh conan the barbarian is like that now um and call of cthulhu was kind of like always like that right so that I think that's true, but it's interesting because like that is what TSR did in the 80s is mm-hmm. they just aggressively pursued licensing and then published stuff. So Star Wars, they, had, they I'm pretty sure they made a Star Wars game. Now, it's not that they made a D&D Star Wars. It's that TSR made a role playing game that was Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, and they made Indiana Jones, which was kind of notorious, right, for not being very good uh, and a bunch of others uh, that were all licensed. Uh, and yeah, it's just interesting that Wizards of the Coast is not pursuing that and, and instead 
because there's still a hunger for it these companies are just doing it themselves Mm -hmm. and i yeah i feel like wizards is losing out on a lot of money now on the one hand i understand that the DD creative team is very small so they don't have a lot of staff to do stuff like this Mm -hmm. but with the potential for money you're going to make off of this product because at this point we have enough case studies that like yes people want rpg tie-in products for all these franchises because they're selling pretty well they could probably be like okay we're going to probably make x amount of dollars so we can hire a writing team (laughs) to do this um yeah it's odd to me that they haven't that wendy's rpg that critical role fiasco a while ago uh (laughs) that just proves that point like if mm-hmm. Wendy's can create an RPG and it's like people are like, oh, this is interesting. And, and I can't tell you how many tweets I saw that night that that went live where they were just like, I think I'm going to go get some Wendy's. And they like would drive and go in Wendy's sales were up because of that. And I don't know anybody playing that right now, but uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, yeah, but and Wizards of the Coast has been really tying into Stranger Things pretty well. Uh, with That's true. They their, did do license you know, Stranger Things stuff. Yep. They did do license Stranger Things stuff uh, to the point now where we're getting those comics that are coming out at the end of the year that are not the Stranger Thing boys, but they're D and D characters running through a fantasy world. So it's like the fantasy characters. That's the comic, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, it's not like them in Hawkins. It's them in their crazy world going to fight the Demogorgon and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I don't know. But I feel like of all the... I mean, Lucian, uh, if you've been on the... Yeah, Lucian is a huge Stranger Things fan, and he thinks it's awesome that D&D is doing all this stuff with Stranger Things. I like Stranger Things, but I don't think that that... I don't think Stranger Things is pulling as many people into D&D as as we think it is. Uh, I could be wrong. To the point where how well did that did that tie-in do? And, and I played in that, uh, that D&D supplement that they made... Uh, and it was not that much fun. It was kind of poorly written, but it was the idea is that it was supposed to be written by this 10 year old and it showed that it was written by a 10 year old and it was very unbalanced and it was kind of like, I don't know how, how this was supposed to work, but like, is it Mm. aside from collectors, are people actually buying this to like start playing D and I don't know. Well, it's also one of those things that stranger things is a big deal when it's in season it's yeah. not like a big movie franchise like a Star Wars or an Indiana Jones. Because uh, like Indiana Jones, obviously movies aren't currently coming out for that. Hopefully. <laughs> Harrison Ford's too old, you guys. Just stop <laughs> making him. Uh, but um, but you could still do uh, a, put out a new role-playing game based on that. And it would probably do really oh. well. Well, what about a, Avengers? Like, why aren't we doing... Sure, yeah. Like, Marvel, why isn't Wizards uh, of the Coast RPG. saying... Hey Marvel, we want to partner with you to make an Avengers RPG where people can create their own superheroes. And yeah. And doesn't Hasbro make all the Marvel toys and own Wizards of the Coast? So like Probably. why yeah. why why aren't we seeing that? And it's not like they haven't taken cracks at Marvel RPGs before. Some of them have been really bad, mm-hmm. but it, they've always tried it and they've always like, you know, sold cuz people like those properties. So yeah. I think Stranger Things is just kind of a bad example because it's it's a TV show on Netflix. It's not as big of a deal as a movie franchise Mm -hmm. or some of the other things you could license. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But yeah, I don't, uh, I think they should do more licensed stuff because somebody's going to do it anyway. Right. So the wizards of the coast might as well try to be the ones who are doing it. Cause at least I trust their design team a little better than I trust whatever design team Wendy's is hiring. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. 
Um, speaking of licensed uh, worlds, uh, Fritz Leiber in D&D Lankmar. Uh, uh, you are familiar with the Lankmar books and the Lankmar mm-hmm. setting, I assume. Uh, this yeah, has been out for a while. So Dungeon Crawl Classics, that's kind of their new business model is, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, uh, it, it's been, what, 10 years? Like 11 years? I think uh, DCC came out in 2011 or 12. Um, and they haven't done a lot of, like, bloat, like, extra classes and things like that with the book. It's very it's very just, like, still core DCC. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are licensing other uh, estates to say, hey, uh, Lankmar, we want to do a Dungeon Crawl Classics Lankmar edition. And we want to do a Dungeon Crawl Classics Empire of the East edition and things like that based on these older uh, Appendix N books that are really, you know, from the 70s and stuff. Uh have you played a Lankmar game? Is this something that you're itching to do? do? You've read the system, I assume, or yeah, no, I've I've read um, parts of the box set, uh, and I really want to play in one, and I'm gonna try and run one for Bride of Cyclops Con. Okay, I'm, and I'm like very familiar with the stories. Uh, the Fafford and Grey Mouser are yeah. like the the two main characters from that, uh, and you know they're they're a part of Appendix N that I feel like a lot of people don't know as much about. Like people know a lot about Tolkien, they know a lot about mm. Conan. Uh, but it feels like they don't know as much about Fafford. And yeah, Korea and I didn't it. when this came out. I was really curious, and I'm reading uh, one of the uh, Fafford Grey Mauser books right now, um, and they're a lot of fun. It's really interesting. Yeah, they're tons so, of fun. Uh, uh, and I just got done weird... reading the Dying Earth or a bunch of the Dying Earth books, which is another inspiration from D and D back in the day. Oof. And fancy and magic, fancy and magic. <laughs> where it's Jack from. Vance. Uh, yep. and he's. Uh, and in 2021, I think uh, Goodman Games is going to launch a Kickstarter for their The Dying Earth, uh, mm-hmm. sub, or you know, campaign setting for Dungeon Crawl Classics, which I'm really excited for. Uh, yeah, so so Goodman Games are super smart. I give them a lot of credit because they understand. For one thing, they don't don't like you were saying earlier. They don't do rules bloat stuff. So they have mm-hmm. their main core rule books. And then in, whenever they're going to publish something new, it's like an adventure or a setting book. Mm-hmm. It's never like classes or class options because they know that that's not really what their audience are interested in. And uh, they also get these licenses that are very niche licenses. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the kind of thing where they're already in a niche area where they mm-hmm. know their audience are people who probably are more familiar with the the dustier corners of the appendix and authors right mm-hmm. so like their audience is going to know who fritz library is their audience is going to know who jack vance is and probably have read some of their stuff so getting those licenses are is a really key thing for them plus those licenses i mean they're not i'm sure they're not free but it's no. not like getting the license for Indiana Jones, right? Yes. It's probably yeah. much more doable for a small company. Yeah, 100%, uh, and then they put so. yeah, then they put their own D, uh, DCC spin and like art style and aesthetic onto those properties, and it usually works out really well. It mm-hmm. just feels very well curated. Like everything they do feels very well thought out and well planned. And specifically with Lankmar, that is a setting that has. Uh, you're talking about like well-planned and well-thought-out. Like That is a setting that doesn't have gods and priests and clerics and things. So when you play DCC Lankmar, you are a warrior or a thief or a wizard. And like those are the classes that you can play. So they actually took classes away, and you're not a dwarf, you're not an elf, you're not all this other stuff. 
Um, but they introduced a new system for healing and a new, like a fun, a, a thing called fleeting luck that kind of like makes you heroes as opposed to feeling like you are, uh, like original DCC. You're just a peasant that found a magic wand kind of a feeling. Um, but in Lankmar, you're supposed to be a hero. And, and I like that. So, uh, yeah. I don't know. So I, I'm, I'm really excited for that kind of stuff. Uh, there were a couple of other interesting things you wanted to talk about with our nine minutes left. Uh, we oh, didn't get gosh. to everything, but uh, yeah. which I knew we wouldn't. But specifically, like uh, the Kickstarter and Wizard Seeking Wizard, if you want to like. Oh, well, we can skip Wizard Seeking Wizard. I'll, okay. I'll just say that it's a podcast I just discovered, and it's like a joke uh, podcast about like a wizard dating podcast. They have like <laughs> segments of different people who are supposedly like they they have a it's a scripted right that mm-hmm. they're like different kinds of wizards that are looking for dates on this podcast it's very funny but yeah worth checking out uh, but the kickstarter is uh there's an old school essentials kickstarter going on they right didn't, now which they didn't uh, promote this stream or anything uh we no. just are big fans of the OSR so <laughs> yeah like like when i ran the the brightlands greyhawk thing i used the old school essentials rules which is a rewrite of the D and D BX uh, set rules from 1980 or 1981. Uh, and old school essentials is great because it takes all those rules and rewrites them very concisely. Like the layout of that book mm-hmm. of those books are just like chef's kiss. They're so good. They're so <laughs> easy to read and easy to use. And they're great. And the company that does it, uh, necrotic gnome press are doing advanced fantasy. They actually already have a couple of those books out, but they're like doing kind of different variations on them. Uh, and the advanced fantasy is they took first edition AD&D rules, which had come out alongside BX, like at the time it launched, because the way D&D worked in the early 80s was there was Dungeons and & Dragons, and then there was advanced Dungeons & Dragons. So if you're just getting into the game, you're playing Dungeons & Dragons which is the simpler rule set and mm. then advanced was the thing with the more class options. So like in regular, you could be like a, a, a warrior, a wizard, a thief, uh, a cleric, an elf, a halfling, or uh, a dwarf. And like, that was it. Cause it had race of class. Yeah. Uh, and then advanced D and D was like, I think in second edition, they decouple race from class. They might do it a little bit in first edition, but that was the thing that had like acrobat and barbarian and bard and stuff like that. So like further class options that were more complex and more complex rules. Um, And the advanced fantasy thing from Necrotic Gnome is they take all the the content from AD&D and then convert it to bx so it mathematically works with bx but you get all those class options within that system and uh it's cool i've read through a bunch of it you can be an illusionist you can be a gnome illusionist it's great <laughs> um real sweet old school DD stuff um and yeah there's like five days left on the kickstarter they're at they had originally been asking like twenty thousand dollars they're at two hundred and thirty thousand dollars yeah right that's now. really cool so they so don't worry about them not meeting their goal. They, they <laughs> but they um, they they have oh, oh and what's his name Peter Mullen I think is the name of the artist who they have doing all their covers and his art is just so cool. It's, it's like very super, retro. Like yeah. oh, it feels like those old school books and stuff. Which is mm-hmm. one of the one of the reasons I was uh, drawn to Dungeon Roll Classics to begin with, because I'm like, what is this art? Like, this is amazing. And then I started picking up old AD&D stuff, and you're like, oh, okay, like, we're mimicking this. Um, And 
yeah, this this artist is really cool with a lot of really awesome stuff. Uh, wh why why do you why other than it's just fun? Why is it important to play some of these older things? Like, oh my gosh, Jordan, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> that could be. We should have chosen that as our topic. Oh, for the maybe episode, maybe we well, could have talked about. I'll that fire Lucian, and you'll come back next week, and we'll talk <laughs> no, about. No, don't do that. But if you, but I would, I would love to tackle that in something in okay. some form maybe um, we could do a, a video on the youtubes uh and just me and you just chat about that for mm -hmm. or like a live stream sometime so and i mean we could definitely bring in other people for that that would yeah. be cool a but round table the, and just uh, be like... yeah the the idea of like okay fifth edition is great you should play it it's mm -hmm. really good but it's not the only game out there mm -hmm. everyone uh it's important not only to experience other rpgs but also to experience past editions of DD because like sure there's a lot of bad stuff in past editions of DD. i already talked about how much i hate thaco i really hate thaco i hate it so much but there is really 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 cool design choices in past mm -hmm. editions uh some of which i mean when they wrote fifth edition you can tell if you've read older editions that they went back and looked at those older editions and took inspiration from them in a lot of the design choices uh, for fifth. So it's just like, you're going to have a way better understanding of the game. And if you like to homebrew stuff, you're going to have a way better understanding of mechanics and how they evolve and what works and what doesn't. Right. And sort of also from an anthropological perspective, how different, generations have viewed rpgs and kind of like what mechanics worked at certain times and like why people viewed gameplay the way that they did and why games played differently mm -hmm. like D D first edition plays very differently than uh current editions of D D does and there's to and i think like when people online now talk about like grognards and people who played way back in the day and how they don't like their play style uh it's because they're trying to compare it to the way they play fifth edition and i'm like no you don't understand there was a very good reason for them to play the way they did back in the day because yeah. the rules supported that kind of gameplay dungeon um, cr crawling specifically and going yes. through like yeah uh um, and exploring that way as opposed to let's have a conversation for an hour and a half about you know uh, what we're going to do with this fifth rod fragment that we just found. Like the the role play <laughs> aspect and the storytelling aspect is a lot more robust now as opposed mm -hmm. to earlier versions where it was just kind of like, hey, let's go explore a dungeon. So Yeah, it was. People boil it down to it was more about killing monsters and taking their stuff in past editions. And I think that's not necessarily true. I think there's oh. much more nuance to the argument than that. But it definitely did work a, a very different way um which like yeah we don't have time to get into all that but there's there's a lot about that that's very interesting so you can learn a lot about the game by looking at and playing older editions just trying them out and by playing other rpgs and seeing how they handle different aspects of gameplay like one of the easiest ones to get into are the apocalypse world engine games because they're like very simplistic at their core but like i'm going to be playing monster of the week uh some point soon game. with my private group and it's like does a lot of really cool stuff with narrative and with action mm -hmm. uh, in the Apocalypse World engine. And there's there's cool stuff in there. You talk about kids on bikes a lot. <sighs> um, I love kids it, on bikes. <laughs> yeah, that game does a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Tales from the Loop does a lot of really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, what else? Like there are really no, cipher cool system. Mechanics. And uh, yeah. it was it was interesting playing Cipher System where 
a, well, specifically I was playing Numenera, but where the same role to hit a monster has just as much urgency as you trying to like swing over a, a river or, uh, because it is literally just, you're rolling a D20 for everything. And uh, the fluid transition from narrative to combat was awesome and fun. Um, uh, before we go, I wanted to talk about the one thing that when we played your Brightlands campaign, uh, specifically like OSR or old school D&D compared to current D&D, you talk about the differences. We initiative is just was so funny in that game because I think oh, it was I every round of works in BX. Yeah. <laughs> every round we would roll a D six and the enemy collectively would roll a D six. And so our collective D six was it higher than theirs. And so there was no, there was no modifiers to this. Like it was just mm-hmm. luck. Uh, and, and then when it was like, okay, you're, you got to go first. Your is anybody first, right? Yeah. 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 And so then it was like, okay, is anybody doing uh ranged attacks? Cause those happen before melee. And so it's not like, well, Jordan rolled a 12 and Lex rolled a six. So Jordan's going first and then Lex goes. It's, it, it was just all of us like, well, I'd like to cast a spell. Okay. Well, you're going to go after this. And I'd like to, and I thought that was really, it was, it was so different from how I have experienced D and D in the, in, in now, you know, so it was interesting. It's an exper- It's a. It's an initiative system that I wish I could port over to Five E, but you kind of can't yeah. because of the way spells and attacks work in Five E. The whole mm-hmm. idea of Five E is like a spell should be just uh, the, cast by a third level wizard should be just as powerful as an attack from a third level fighter yeah. in combat. Right? You should be have just as be able to have just as much impact on combat. But the way initiative assumes things work in that is spellcasters have to go last because those spells are going to be devastating, so they're going to have to wait. Mm -hmm. And if you tried to enforce a system like that in 5e, it's just like, oh, I just have to wait to do the same thing everyone else is doing, (laughs) which is not as much fun. It just kind of hurts the players. But the idea of rolling team initiative, I think, is really interesting. Uh, there's even rules in that book for like if you if you your team's d6 if the player's d6 is the same number as the monster's d6 they just act at the same time yeah so like melee attacks just go off at the same time for both so you sides. could potentially have a like we both killed each other because like yeah, my attack definitely goes off and your attack definitely goes off and we it, both hit and we and we both hit and we both took us to zero and you don't see that in D D. 5e i guess because it's always going to be like well my attack literally went before yours so you didn't get the chance to attack and yeah it's kind of interesting yeah it's a super fun initiative system that's worth trying out uh if you're playing one of those older games yeah uh well lex thank you so much for coming on uh short notice again and this has been a really good discussion a lot of we yeah we need to have more more just chats about uh the osr because i love it um, and I agree with LB and chat that we need to play some more Dungeon Crawl classics. Oh, 100%. Yeah, so yeah. much fun. So much fun. Uh, just like one shots and stuff. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming out and watching us live. Thank you for, uh, liking the, sh- the show and the, and maybe, uh, do leaving reviews for the podcast and things like that. Uh, I know I said Ryman Frost Maidens. We were going to talk about Frost Maidens with, uh, Lucian, but then he, uh, didn't show up. So now we ended up talking about the OSR cause that's what we love. Um, you guys are great. We will see you next week with uh, another episode of the Saturday Morning D&D Show. Lex, anything you would like to say or promote or whatever before we leave? Um, I'm just going to reiterate uh, the zine that I'm working on. Um, 
check that out. I can actually post the link in chat if you'd like. Yeah, I don't know if you are a, an administrator, ad moderator. Uh, so now well, you should I be able to. You, okay, I was going to say I sent it to you in Discord, but I'll post it here. Um, so yeah, uh, check that out. It's going to be on Bandcamp and Itch uh, in the next few weeks. Depends how quickly I can get that dungeon art. But yeah, in the next few weeks. So check it out if you're interested in that. Yeah, please do. And I'll put that that in uh, the show notes for the podcast and things like that. Uh, And it's going to be awesome. Also, uh, your Twitter is literally above your head on the the overlay. So go subscribe to Lex on Twitter because I'm sure he will be promoting a lot of his stuff there and you can find it. Um, And yeah, with that, everybody, we'll see you next week with another episode of the Saturday Morning D&D Show. Goodbye. Our intro and outro music is 8-Bit March by Twin Musicom, licensed under Creative Commons. Check out their website at www.twinmusicom.org.